So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're picking up our studies in 1 Corinthians. We come to chapter 3 and verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wage according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Being a parent is a very difficult thing, isn't it? Um, you know, children will fight the bit out. I remember on one occasion, our boys, they uh, were arguing over a bar of chocolate. And somebody had come to visit us. They'd given a Mars bar and uh, the boys had taken it up into the room and we could hear the argument as it was unfolding uh, about the big half and the wee half. Now, we hadn't the wisdom of the Russells because James was telling us that the rule was in their house that whoever broke the bar took the wee half, which seems sensible to me, but we weren't that, that, that wise as parents. And eventually, it was reaching such a pitch that we burst into the bedroom, and there the boys are wrestling over this bar of chocolate, and I shouted at them, and Simon, noting the distraction, took the big half and popped it into his mouth uh, in one go. His brother jumped on him, wrestled him to the ground, and then went after the bar of chocolate with no intention of eating it because it was covered in the slobbers of his brother, but wanting to deny his brother the pleasure of winning that small victory. That's children. That's children. And that is a, a product of immaturity. They actually get on very well now and are, are, are best friends, but the infantile division and uh, strife that they experienced was a, a result of their immaturity. Now, that was a key problem in Corinth. They were immature. They had never grown up. The squabbles that they experienced could be traced to that immaturity. And in the section that we read this morning, I want you to notice four things about the immaturity. First of all, the problem exposed. I want you to think yourself back into the first century AD, and you're a member of the church in Corinth, and you have made a special effort to be at the midweek prayer meeting because you have heard that a letter has arrived from the Apostle Paul, which is a response to a letter that the church had sent him asking him certain questions. The church building is packed. Even the hangers-on have made a special effort to be present. With all the trouble that there's been in the church, there's a, a frostiness in the atmosphere, and people are sitting in little groups whispering to one another, some obviously agitated that so much prominence had been given to Paul's letter uh, when they would have preferred a letter from Apollos or Peter. And one of the elders begins to read, and a hush descends on the congregation after the usual greeting. 
Paul lays blow upon blow upon them, rebuking them for their disputes and their division. And just when they think he's finished, he comes to chapter 3, although there were no chapters uh, in the original manuscripts, comes to chapter 3 and verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He says, you're a pack of children. You're like children in the playground engaging in infantile arguments about nothing. You think you're so knowledgeable, so spiritual, so influential, but you're worldly, says the NIV, carnal, says the authorized version, literally as the ESV has it, of the flesh, flesh. You're fleshly. And he says at the end of verse 4, they were behaving in a human way. NIV says merely in a human way. God had saved them out of the world. He had given them His Spirit to instruct them. As we were thinking back in our last study at the end of chapter 2, He had given them the mind of Christ, but they were living like ordinary pagan men and women responding to each other in a merely human way. And the problem was that they were immature. Verse 1, infants in Christ, babes in Christ, the authorized version says. They hadn't grown up in their faith. Paul says to these Corinthians, grow up and act your age. Some of them have been Christians six or seven years, but they hadn't grown, they hadn't progressed, they hadn't developed, they hadn't matured. There's nothing so delightful as a newborn baby. They're little miracles, so cute and cuddly, uh, wonders of creation. But as their minds begin to develop, they acquire new skills and abilities almost on a daily basis. But not all that grow old grow up. A little baby is a, a wonderful thing, but there's nothing as tragic as a 10-year-old with the mind of a baby, a mind that hasn't developed, that hasn't matured. I remember visiting in a home on one occasion, and there was a little boy of six who had the mind of a six-month-old baby. He wore nappies. He had a bib. He drank from a baby's feeding cup because of his disability. He just never had developed and never had matured. And it, it, it was a sad tragedy. And it's one of the great mysteries of providence. But the Corinthians, you see, had a self-inflicted immaturity. Spiritually, they were nappies. They had never progressed. They had never grown. They had never developed. They were spiritually stunted. That was the problem of the Corinthian church. They were spiritually immature, mere infants in Christ. Now, they were Christians because Paul uses the word brothers there in verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. They were Christians, but they were living a fleshly life, a worldly life. They were uh, living like children. That was the problem with the Corinthians. They weren't acting their age. In fact, they were acting like non-Christians. I want to ask you then this morning, spiritually, have you left the Duplo behind? Have you progressed the Lego yet? Are you still watching Paw Patrol? Are you still reading the Gruffalo? Or have you progressed? Have you, have you moved from... Paw Patrol to something 
a bit more mature? Have you, have you moved from SpongeBob? I was going to say underpants, but square pants, isn't it? Spans. Have you, have you progressed to something more substantial? You've got to leave the nursery school. You've got to leave all the toys and the trikes behind and the sandpit. Get out of the sandpit. And you've got to sit down and actually learn to read and write. There's a primary school near us in, in Balamani, and the, it's a very small school, and the headmistress dressed exactly the same as the children. She wore the children's uniform. And as you drove past, it was incongruous. It was, there's something wrong there. Or you would say to yourself, that's a big pupil. <laughs> uh, it just looked out of place. Well, that was the problem in Corinth. They, they just hadn't grown up. The problem exposed immaturity. Secondly, notice the symptoms exhibited. What was it that Paul observed in the life of the Corinthians that he was able to diagnose this problem so accurately? How did he know that they were immature? Well, of course, they were behaving like children. They were worldly or fleshly, as verse 1 states. When we become Christians, we, we are given a new nature. We are given the Spirit, but the old nature, the flesh, what's called the flesh, sarks in Greek, it's the flesh, the old nature, is still there. It's not completely eradicated. And Paul tells us in Galatians 5 and verse 16 that those two natures are in conflict with each other, and we've got to starve the old nature and the flesh, and we've got to feed the new nature, the Spirit. One must decrease and the other must increase. The flesh has been crucified uh, with Christ, and we must never withdraw the nails. We have to let the flesh die. Now, that's hard work. It requires the utmost in terms of dedication, commitment, and self-discipline. It's a battle that the Christian engages in all of their lives. The Christian is like a, a salmon swimming upstream, constantly battling against the flow of the stream and gravity. But the Corinthians had given up. They had stopped swimming, and then they allowed themselves to be carried down once again to the mouth of the river. Indeed, it seems that they never progressed beyond the mouth of the river. They were manifesting fleshly or worldly, or as the authorized version has it, carnal behavior. And that, to Paul, revealed their true condition. Now, now what was this carnal behavior that he observed? Had they taken up smoking? Had the girls or the women started to dye their hair or wear trousers? Was that the worldly behavior that he observed? Well, well no. He tells us, we'll, we'll look at verse 4, for you are still of the flesh, and while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one follows, says, I follow Paul, and the other, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So the marks of worldliness, of carnality that he sees, in the, the Corinthians was jealousy, quarreling, and division. That's Paul's marks of the flesh, his indicators of immaturity, the thing that reveals the lack of progress in the faith. You know what it's like when children are young, the world centers around them. They are there to be served. And if you want a demonstration of selfish 
behavior, just put a, a new toy into the center of uh, a ring of young children. They will fight the bit out to take possession of that toy. Speaking of young uh, children, of course. Well, that's what Paul is saying. The evidence that you're mere infants in Christ is all this rancor, division over personalities that you're experiencing. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. It's reminiscent of the child who says, I'm not going to be your friend if you're his friend, or the little boy who picks up the ball and walks off the pitch and says, it's my ball. I'm not playing anymore. Childish, infantile, immature uh, behavior. A friend of mine in Australia says that church business meetings are like um, the swimming pool. All the noise comes from the shallow end. I'm not sure if that's true. <clears throat> well, this is, this is what Paul is saying. You're arguing, you're bickering, you're fighting, you're quarreling. You have all these cliques and factions. Those are proof, if proof be needed, that you have never grown up in Christ. These two words, jealousy and strife, jealousy and quarreling as the NIV has it, envy and strife, were the, the reason why the church was in the trouble it was in. Jealousy is an attitude, and strife is an action that springs from that attitude. One is the inner emotional condition, and the other is the outward expression of it. Strife begins with jealousy in the heart. Disaffection and resentment builds up, and that expresses itself then in bad relationships and a critical attitude. That's why Paul uses the word flesh, translated in the NIV as worldly, in the AV as carnal. It begins in the inner man. It begins in the heart. And if that jealousy and critical spirit is left unchecked, it will erupt into strife and division. The writer to the Hebrews warns us about a, a root of bitterness springing up in our hearts. It needs to be uprooted. It needs to be dealt with. And the sweetness of the Lord needs to replace that so that will in turn manifest it, uh, itself in sweetness in our relationships with other people. Another friend, a, a pastor, and he moved to a new area, and he went to his neighbor who had a reputation of, of being very harsh and hard and critical of other people and other denominations. They went to see him, and they discovered that they had a common interest in flutes, and they had a, a lovely hour together discussing flutes and talking about their collection of flutes. And then they turned to the church. This man got aggressive and harsh and hard. And my friend unwittingly said to me, you know, Stephen, he would be a lovely man if he wasn't a Christian. He'd be a lovely man if he wasn't a Christian. Well, some Christians are like that. They would be lovely people if they weren't Christians. So, something has affected their heads. Well, no, affected their hearts and brought bitterness to them. Well, Paul would tell us that the mark of worldliness is not dyeing your hair. So most of the ladies here are okay. It's not dyeing... I should have said that. <clears throat> it's not dyeing your hair. It's not wearing trousers. If, if that was the case, all the Christian women in China uh, would be worldly, in rural parts of China anyway. 
but rather it's jealousy and strife, a critical, harsh, censorious spirit. That's Paul's definition of a flesh-driven Christian. On one occasion, Martin Luther was traveling to the Diet of Worms and where he made that remarkable statement, my conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand, I can do no other. And his friends warned him not to go, and they reminded him of what happened to John Huss a hundred years earlier when he was promised safe passage in a dispute that he was having with the church, and they ended up putting him to death. And Luther said this quite remarkably. He says, I fear more that which is in me than that which is outside of me. I fear more that which is in me than that which is outside of me. If the flesh is given its head, it will reveal itself in jealousy and strife. The problems exposed, the symptoms exhibited, the reason examined. Why was it that the flesh, the old nature, had dominated the lives of these Corinthians? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2, he says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready. You see, the problem they had was with their diet. When Paul first preached to these Corinthians, he taught them the more easily digestible elementary truths of doctrine, that the milk. But now, some five or six years later, they still needed to be fed with milk. They could not as yet spiritually digest the more solid food, strong meat. Now, you see, it is the Word of God that is the means of development and the agent of change in the life of the believer. It is the Word of God, through the Word of God, that we come to faith. James says, He chose to give us birth, how? Through the Word of truth that we might become a kind of first fruits of all who believe. And it is by the Word of God that you grow as a, a Christian. Jesus prayed that the disciples would be sanctified by truth. And then He adds, your Word is truth. It's the Word of God that promotes and develops holiness in the life of the believer and subdues that old nature, the flesh. We are transformed, says Paul in Romans 12, by the renewing of our mind, truth entering the intelligence and affecting our wills. It's not by tingles in the fingers. It's not by shivers up the spine. It's by drinking in the Word of God, soaking up the Word of God, marinating ourselves in the Word of God. There is no other way. Now, the problem in Corinth was that they had not progressed from milk to meat. When a baby is born, all it can digest is, is milk. But as it grows gradually, solid foods are introduced, mushed and minced at first, but eventually they will eat what an adult eats. But these Corinthians hadn't progressed at all, and that was the root of their problem. Now, like the Corinthians, many Christians today have not grown in their faith, progressed in their faith, are still worldly because they haven't developed in their diet. Sometimes it's the fault of the pastor who doesn't feed them the Word of God, and sometimes it's their own fault because they will not be fed. Some Christians prefer milk, and they will study the Bible, and they will protest um, aggressively if the pastor goes too deep. But for a pastor to give milk week after week 
is sinning not just against his congregation, but he is sinning against his calling. And for a believer to reject the meat of the Word in favor of the milk of the Word is grievous to the Lord. I don't don't think Paul means that you have to go so deep that nobody can understand it. You know Spurgeon's definition of some ministers that they are incomprehensible on Sunday and invisible during the rest of the week. I I think what he means is that the, the deep truths are taught simply and accessibly but they are taught. It's like that little girl of 10 years old that when Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones came back from his holiday said, I'm glad to see you back, doctor, because I can't understand anybody else. And I don't think he means that you progress from the cross to other doctrines. I don't think he means that because the cross is always central, as we were thinking a few weeks ago, to, to our theology. But when you come to faith, you have a a very superficial understanding of the cross. He died that we might be forgiven. He died that we might to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. But then we, we begin to think of the, the doctrine that lies behind the cross, like propitiation, like expiation, like substitution. We begin to think of for whom did Christ die? We begin to to think of the payment that was made. We begin to think of His righteous life. We, We start to burrow down into those doctrines. And as we burrow down into those doctrines, it gives us a deeper and more wonderful appreciation of who He is and what He has done. So, when I was baptized, I didn't think too much about baptism. I did it because, well, it was commanded and everybody else was doing it. But now it means a lot to me because it was my identification with Christ. It was my attachment to His cause. It was, as the confession says, a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, that the promises of the gospel are sealed to me in, in baptism. When I think of the Lord's table, when I, when I think of the Trinity and the relationship between the Trinity and the economic Trinity and the ontological Trinity and the relationship between Christ when He was on earth and Christ as He was he, eternally. And you begin to get your head around those doctrines, but rather than having an intellectual kind of effect upon you, it draws you out in a deeper love and devotion to, to God. That's what he's talking about problem exposed, the symptoms exhibited, the reason examined, the remedy explained. This sinful exaltation of personalities of the preachers in Corinth, Paul corrects that with a dose of doctrine, with strong meat from the the Word of God. And that's what Paul deals with in verses 5 to 9. He gives a good dose of doctrine. He gives some strong meat. And the doctrine that he actually highlights is the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. He reminds the Corinthians of the sovereignty of God and the servants of God and the gospel of God and the rewards of God. First of all, he reminds them of the sovereignty of God when it comes to the servants of God. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Now, notice he doesn't say who. Who is Apollos or who is Paul? He says, what is Apollos and what is Paul? It's almost as if he's dehumanizing them at that point, and he's saying they're, they're the only, they're only instruments through whom you came to believe. 
It's, it's like the author who uses the word processor, and it's the word processor that actually types the novel, but the word processor is nothing. Or the artist who paints a painting with the brush, the brush is nothing. It's in the hand of the artist. It's the artist that's key. And he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, that's the, the Greek word for deacon, deacons through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. They're only servants, he says. They're, they're nothing. Apollos is nothing, and Paul is nothing. I'm nothing, he says, but only servants, only table waiters through whom you came to believe. We were the ones who delivered the, the food to you. He says, we're all different. Apollos and I have different gifts, styles, and abilities. But God has made us that way. That's, that's the way God has designed it. That as the Lord assigned to each. So for any pastor to get jealous over another pastor's gifts and abilities is absolutely foolish. Because God has given those gifts. Those gifts are just the means, the instruments through whom you have come uh, to believe. And that's why jealousy among pastors is so, so foolish. So the sovereignty of God and the servants of God. So remember what he's doing. He's given them some strong meat to contradict and to correct this bad attitude that they had de developed. Secondly, he says you need to recognize the sovereignty of God in the gospel of God. Look at verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Now, to us in our country, planting the seed might seem infinitely more important than watering the seed. But remember, this was a, the ancient Near East. This was a Mediterranean climate. This was a dry climate. If the seed was not watered, it would not grow. When my family emigrated to Australia. My father bought an almond farm, and uh, it wasn't a very fruitful almond farm, and that's because the, the irrigation system had broken down. And one of the things that we had to do was to replace the tubing that ran from tree to tree, that every tree had its own direct feed that dripped down constantly so that that tree would blossom and produce the nuts. And so watering is critical in a dry country. But although Paul planted and Apollos watered, notice this, it was God that made things grow. You see, human responsibility and divine sovereignty are working side by side. We must plant and we must water, but we've got to understand that it's only God, only God who can make things grow. That's, it's His work, His prerogative. Only He can make things grow. We can't even create an anxious thought. Where the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit, it's God who must plant His Spirit in the human heart, regenerate that heart, and bring that person to faith in Christ. Do you see what Paul is doing? The Corinthians were looking to him and to Apollos, and Paul says, look, salvation's of the Lord. It wasn't us that saved you. It was God who saved you. I remember going to see my pastor about um, being baptized, and he, he asked me then how I became a Christian. And I must have been stressing so much the people that had influence upon me and the agency 
of my conversion that all of a sudden he leaned over very seriously. He says, but Stephen, who saved you? I was taken back a little bit. It's God. It's God. The, the only explanation of your conversion and your salvation is the grace of God. Salvation is of God. And if we could understand that, how it would deliver us from putting pastors on pedestals and preferring this one over that one and the number of people that they have influenced as far as the gospel is concerned. So, remember what he's doing. He's correcting aberrant behavior through giving them some doctrine, some strong meat, and he gives them uh, an insight into the sovereignty of God in service, that is God who calls and equips men, the sovereignty of God in salvation, and then the sovereignty of God in terms of reward. Uh, look at uh, verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to, what is this, according to, to what? According to his labor. Do you see that? Not according to results, but according to his labor. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If salvation is of the Lord, and it is, why would God reward us for results? Since it's him working in us and through us. But God will not reward us according to our results, but he will reward us according to our labor. The results are his business. And that's what was being contradicted in Corinth. You know, I was converted through Paul. You know, I'm, I'm the real McCoy. I was converted through Apollos. Well, well he's the polished uh, preacher. Uh, I, I, I prefer Cephas or, or, or Peter. William Carey, you know, preached for seven years in India and never saw one convert. Seven years in India, never saw one convert. And uh, his biographer says of him, the number of conversions directly attributable to him is pathetically small. The number indirectly attributable to him must be legion. You see, God, God doesn't call us to be successful. God calls us to be faithful, and our reward will be based not on our success, but on our faithfulness, our faithfulness to our word. Think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached for years and maybe had two, two converts, two, two people who were brought to faith. Failure? Well, a failure in the eyes of men, but not in the eyes of God. Or you think of that passage that Steve Lawson preached on in Isaiah 6, when in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, and the, the, the hem of his robe filled the temple. And he cried, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. And you remember then the tongs from the tongs of the altar. A live coal was taken from the place of sacrifice that touched his lips and healed him. And then God says, who shall I send, and who will go for us? little reference to the Trinity. Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And then he's given his ministry. 
Go to this people and say, keep on hearing and do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. What a ministry! That you're going to make their eyes blind and you're going to make their ears dull, that you're going to harden their hearts. But you see, that's God's prerogative. That's God's business. It's not our job to soften hearts. It's His job to soften hearts. And if, if you grasp that, it, heaven will not be turning up with all these scalps attached to your back, uh, to your belt saying, well, he was converted through me, she was converted through me, they were converted through me. But God will say, were you faithful? Were you faithful to me in the way that you lived your life, in the way you spoke for me, in the way you witnessed for me? Because the results are my business. So here was this problem in Corinth, this problem of immaturity, this terrible kind of rancor that was going round in the church. And the problem was that they had never grown up. They had never developed in their faith. They had never moved from the milk to the meat of the Word of God. And so Paul corrects that abundant behavior with a good dose of strong meat, a good dose of doctrine. And he says, in effect, don't you know that God is sovereign over all these things and you need to just buy to his sovereignty. So I want to encourage you this morning then to grow up, to leave the trikes and the sandpit and the duplo behind and move into the, the, the Word of God and seek to understand what God is actually saying in His Word. Apply your minds. Isn't it funny? Isn't it funny that people will apply their minds to their jobs, doctors, engineers, um, technicians, and then when it comes to the Bible, they kind of suspend their mind, and they, they don't think, and they don't want to think. Let's use our minds. Let's understand that it's through the renewing of our minds that we grow and develop, and stability comes to our lives, not only as individuals, but comes to our church as well. Amen.